This is Farm and Table, an Iowa's original program featuring articles from a variety of publications that focus on farming, food, and the business of agriculture. Your reader today is Lou Pyatt. Our first article comes from the August issue of Successful Farming and is entitled Feeder House Slats, Chains. The feeder house has a big influence on threshing in the way it presents the crop, particularly a wet crop, in an even stream to the rotor or cylinder. Edgington explains, Yet slats and chains are often passed over in preseason inspections. In that regard, check to see that all the slats are operating parallel to each other and are not worn. A bent slat is an invitation to a breakdown since such a slat can become loose and jam and possibly damage the feeder house, he warns. While you're rotating the feeder house drive, inspect chains for wear and proper tension. If they have reached the full extension of their tensioning adjustment, then you will need to replace the chains. A lot of operators misinspecting the keepers on the connecting links to make sure they are secure. Also, examine the chain guides and replace if worn. While you're at it, scan the top drive sprockets and the bearings of the front drum for wear. Generally, you do a great job inspecting the rotor or cylinder where preseason inspections fail is in examining concave elements for rounded or bent bars, missing wires, foreign object or residue buildup. Edgington urges you to remove all the concave panels, thoroughly cleaning them before reinstalling. Make sure the units are level when reinstalled, he says. Finally, check to see that the seals on covers are intact so they don't leak crop during threshing. Also inspect the front beaters, plates for wear. I'm going back to the title of this article. The title of the article is Often Overlooked Breakdowns. There are nine often ignored components that can stop harvests in its tracks. It's written by Dave Mowitz, executive editor, Machinery. And it's written by Rodney Edgington, the SF Combine doctor. Rodney Edgington has witnessed the wear and tear that harvest can inflict on a combine from the thousands of harvesters he and his crew have inspected and repaired over the years. His company, Combine Specialties, services combines from across the high plains out of the firm's base in Ulysses, Kansas. You can contact Edgington via his website, combinespecialties.com, or by calling 620 521 2223. Agriculture's aging fleet of combines will be put to the test this fall, consuming what looks to be a water, wetter than usual crop. This will test the capacities of combines and put stress on components that are often overlooked during preseason preparations. Successful Farming's magazine, Combine Dr. Radney Edgington, identifies these neglected components in this preseason preparation guide. Now back to the article, number three, Chafer Sieve Elements. One of the dirtiest jobs in prepping a harvester for the season is removing the chafer and sieves so that 
so that task is often avoided. With the chafer and sieves out, look for general wear, particularly in the center of the front half of the chafer. This is where the highest amount of residue and grain flows in from the separator. Examine frames, check their sides and corners for stress cracks and breaks. You can weld cracks, you can weld cracks if necessary. Next, check assembly bolts for looseness and tighten them down to the torque specified in the owner's manual. Only use the proper grade of bolt specified in the manual when replacing fasteners. Your overall aim is to have solid frames since you don't want the chafer or sieve operating loosely, Edgington says. During this inspection, look for bent or missing fingers. Notice where the chafer and sieve rods wires operate in the frame and look for elongated holes in the frame. Then examine the deflector flaps and high crop dividers to see if they're missing or damaged. While you're rotating while you are rotating the feeder house drive, inspect chains for wear and proper tension. Number four cleaning the shoe fan. The cleaning shoe fan is one of those components that seems indestructible. Today's fans turn at a high rate of speed. A piece of residue sucked into the fan can bend a vein, jeopardizing its operating balance, which will eventually destroy a fan, Edgington warns. His advice is to remove the drive belt and spin the fan, watching for trueness in its operation while listening for any bearing noise. Pay particular attention to the belt on variable steed fans as those often become glazed and cracked with use. Today's fans turn at a high rate of speed. A piece of residue sucked into the fan can bend a vein, jeopardizing its operating balance, which will eventually destroy a fan, Rodney Edgington says. Elevators. Take the drive belts off both grain elevators so you can rotate the chain assembly. This allows you to find any worn or missing paddles and sagging chains. Next, check chain tension and adjust as needed. Recheck tension during, daily during harvest. A sure sign that tension is lacking reveals itself in paddles that, are, that sag backward in operation, which causes grain to cascade back down the elevator. When turning the elevators, listen for bearing noise, Edgington says. A chopper. Worn knives not only do a poor job sizing, chopping, residue, but also cause chopper operations to drag, consuming more horsepower. If new knives are needed, you must replace the entire set of knives. Otherwise, the chopper is thrown out of balance, which can cause the entire unit to self-destruct. Take extra time to examine the entire residue management system assembly. Check tailboard veins for cracking and wear since they are critical to evenly distributing chopped material. Finish the inspection by scrutinizing the unit's mounting hinge points looking for stress cracks and the rotor bearings looking for smooth operation. Number seven, sprockets. Sprockets on combines provide incredibly long service. As such, you probably assume that unless their teeth are broken, sprockets are good to go. 
but cupped teeth and with distinct hooks on their ends can greatly compromise the smooth operation of the drive chains they are powering. Chains tend to crawl on worn sprockets as their hooked teeth won't readily release from the sprocket teeth. By the way, hooked sprocket teeth are a good indication that the chain they are powering is misadjusted. Number eight, belts. Unless belts are obviously frayed or showing signs of separation, they're often only given a cursory inspection. Considering the job they must perform in transmitting a huge amount of power, the entire length of every belt should be inspected, Edgerton's urges. Examine belt covers for separation, chunks that are missing, burn streaks, and grooves in their sides. Discovering such issues requires the belt to be replaced. Such symptoms can also indicate a problem with misadjustments of an idler or tension, tensioning pulley or an impending parts failure, such as a bearing going bad. Unlike typical V-belts, the belts powering the feeder house are of a special design for transferring a lot of power. Much of the work they do requires power to be transferred strictly on the sides of the belt, so closely examine the belts for burn spots and grooves on their sides. Finally, after inspecting a belt, adjust its tension according to the owner's manual. Number nine, yield monitor. A misadjusted or broken yield monitor won't stop harvest, but it jeopardizes the collection of yield data you've come to depend on when mapping fields. Joe Luck, an extension precision agriculture engineer with the University of Nebraska, has advice on yield monitors. A critical element of yield monitor operation is calibration of the mass flow impact plate sensor or optical sensors in the clean grain elevator, he explains. The calibration procedure for the mass flow sensor is time-consuming but absolutely vital for accurate yield measurements since mass flow sensor readings may be affected by crop type, moisture content, and test weight, you should consider performing separate calibrations under these differing circumstances. The mass flow sensor calibration process usually involves harvesting two to six small loads of grain, around 3,000 to 5,000 pounds, depending on manufacturer specifications, and measuring the scale weight of each load. The reason for taking this number of loads is to compensate for varying yields expected across a yield during harvest. You can get more details on this procedure by going to http dot slash slash extension publications dot unl dot edu slash assets slash pdf slash ec two zero zero four dot pdf dot Dave Moitz, executive editor, covers machinery, shops, irrigation, and maintenance topics for successful farming. He also hosts The Machinery Show and is editor of the Ageless Iron Almanac. His email is dave.mowitz at meredith.com. The next article is entitled Breaking Down Silos. Pullman Farms won't realize the promise of digital agriculture until a seamless automated infrastructure is in place. The article is written by Lori Bedard, Executive Director, Ag Technology. 
Silos are more than just a place to store grain on Palmen farms. They also represent isolated pockets of yield, moisture, machine, and nutrient data that could help the Sutherland Nebraska operation get the most out of the nearly 10,000 acres it covers. Rorick Pullman relies on 40 different apps to control and monitor the 14 dry land and irrigated crops grown on the land. The software generates one terabyte of site-specific data every month, which equates to 75 million pages of information. That information is key to helping him make sound management decisions. The problem is no one has created a system that effortlessly connects the dots to give Palman better insights. Also, if he can't access the information from his smartphone, he's not interested. The apps and the information being collected have stopped being useful, says Palman, who farms with wife Deb and son Zachary. Creating a Solution Companies with long history in agriculture have been working to build user-friendly systems that seamlessly process and integrate data from myriad apps, yet data sharing and interoperability are still not easy or seamless. Those companies also face a problem of their own. How do they collaborate with others to develop a solution yet remain competitive? As agriculture's existing players work on a resolution outside like IBM are emerging with their own approach. Launched in 2018, the Watson Decision Platform for Agricultural leverages the power of artificial intelligence, parentheses AI, parentheses, to analyze silos of data and then generate evidence-based insights. Watson begins by creating a digital representation of a field. This electronic field record, parentheses, EFR, parentheses, includes soil, equipment, farm practice, and workflow, and imaginary and imagery data. It can also accept weather data from the weather company. Applying AI, machine learning, and advanced analytics to the EFR, the platform highlights key factors that might affect crop yields like soil temperature, moisture levels, crop stress, pests, and diseases. Ultimately, each EFR becomes a digital twin of everything that happens on Palman's 113 fields. A unified dashboard lets him easily see and monitor data, as well as receive alerts when critical elements like weather could affect a crop. The difficulty with many of the decisions Palman tries to make is that they are biologically based. They are almost always influenced by weather we don't yet know. Having the ability to forecast conditions has to be an integral part of any decision platform, says Kenneth Suddeth, research agricultural engineer at USDA slash ARS. In addition, the process has to be automated from start to finish. Technologies like automated guidance, shutoffs, and boom height control systems that had little or no direct human control saw fairly swift adoption because they improved the workflow without recurring operator interaction. Today, too many applications require farmers to input information over and over again. Every time farmers make an entry, there is a chance they'll get it right, but there's also a chance they'll get it wrong, says Michael Gomes, Vice President Business Development 
low T top con agriculture. More often than not, the most common variety planted is labeled one because the window to get that seed in the ground is continually shrinking. It's a painful process and farmers are tired of it. If farmers can select from a pick, pick list, Gome says their risk of getting it wrong is a whole lot lower than having to punch it in letter by letter or ensuring they call it the same exact thing every time. Only about 8% of the data being collected is actually usable, says John Fulton, associate professor at Ohio State University. The Power of AI To make the analysis better, a much cleaner data set is needed, and many believe AI can take production there, producers there. Applying it to data provides Pullman, Pullman with a myriad new abilities. From the air, he can deploy a drone to capture a field of corn and use AI visual recognition to identify crop disease or pest infestation. <clears throat> From the ground, plants can be photographed up close so Pullman can react in real time. Simplifying the process also allows agronomists who currently spend 80% of their time in trying to collect and analyze a farmer's data to make decisions with greater confidence, says Kristen Laurie, general manager of Watson Media and Weather Solutions. By collating and curating the data, Paulman can also identify the best practices for his irrigated acres. With an annual allotment of 13 inches of water for a corn crop that requires about 22 inches of water, he has to ensure every drop is used wisely. That means relying on technology that understands he has some soils that will take two inches of water per hour and others that will take one-fourth inch per hour. Because prices fluctuate constantly, Watson also offers a tool that marshals huge amounts of pricing data from the local grain elevator to the future markets and recommends the best time to sell to maximize profit. It's the type of data gathering analysis that would be impossible without AI and analytics. Building the database. As more data flows in, the decision platform becomes a more robust solution. That's the caveat. In order for AI to be effective, it requires a large database to draw from. Farmers not only are going to have to allow other others access to their information, but also will need to share data to take advantage of digital tools. Although we talk about having so much data, in many cases it's very localized. It's almost as though we have too much data, yet not enough data at the same time, Suddeth says. The key, Gome says, is to get the right data that farmers accept so they can make take action with confidence. So how do you get farmers comfortable with sharing their data? Billy Tiller maintains that it has to be producer-led initiative. Founded in 2012, the Grower Information Services Cooperative, GISC, is a farmer-owned data cooperative providing secure cloud storage for its farmer members. Headquartered in Lubbock, Texas, the company's platform collects and manages multiple layers of agronomy and yield data across a variety of crops, including corn, soybeans, wheat, and sorghum. It's time for farmers to have operations that are built on objective motives, not on a reason to buy another product, says Teller, who is the founder of CEO and GISC. IBM also is also a firm believer in data cooperatives, 
By building thousands of farmer experiences in a data set, Palman could understand, for example, what is common among all corn growers in Nebraska that is driving yield 20% above the average compared to those who had yields 20% below average. Somehow he is viewing his operation from a different perspective. He can evaluate which practices are truly driving better yields and which ones are not contributing. Instead of relying solely on data from their own farms year after year, farmers can learn from each other as well, Loria says. Access and sharing are key components to the infrastructure because value from analytics will come from different companies, Fulton says. Skeptical about companies with a vested interest in his data, Watson also offers the independence Paulman is looking for. IBM is not trying to sell me more fertilizer or machines, he says. It's a trust thing. Moving forward, infrastructure is the biggest component in making digital ag a success story. According to Ag Gateway, 84% of farmers and their trusted business partners say they find it moderately or very difficult to compile and analyze the data coming from farm fields. Established in 2005, Ag Gateway has been chipping away at the interoperability friction. It's standardized precision ag data exchange, parentheses, SPADE, S-P-A-D-E, into parentheses, project has produced the ag data application toolkit, parentheses, ADAPT, A-D-A-P-T, parentheses, which enables different software applications and hardware systems to seamlessly exchange information with broad adoption as the end goal. To date, 26 companies have committed to ADAPT by either developing a plug-in for their file format or integrating ADAPT support into their software systems. We use technology wherever and however we can because we have to get better at what we're doing for future generations, Paulman says. Insight from data helps us do that. Until there is a single system in place that standardizes and connects the entire ecosystem, the silos will remain and the value of data will continue to be limited for Palman Farms. A little side article here, Developing a Digital Strategy. Before farmers can gain value from their data, they have to create a foundation. John Fulton, Ohio State University, suggests farmers consider the seven points below when developing a digital strategy. Number one, identify the technologies you use as well as the data generated from those technologies. Number two, organize your stored data, in other words, your crop farm field. Number three, store an original copy of your data both on and off the farm so there is a backup. Number four, ensure data can be accessed from any location and that offline information is updated once a connection is reestablished. Number five, collect complete and quality data so you can execute desired analysis. Number six, protect data with secure passwords. Number seven, define a strategy for sharing files, which includes an easy-to-copy format both on and off the farm. Don't share information without permission. You've been listening to Farm and Table, an IRIS original program. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Alba Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. 
Let us know what you think about this program by calling 515-243-6833 or visiting iradioreading.org. science and the sea. The big ships that ply the Indian Ocean and South China Sea help power the world's economy, and they also may help power the weather. In particular, they may seed the formation of tall clouds that produce lightning, twice as much lightning along their shipping lanes as in the surrounding ocean. Researchers were mapping lightning strikes in that part of the world when they noticed something odd two straight lines where there were far more lightning strikes than average. They compared those maps with traffic along the shipping lanes and found that the two matched perfectly. The ships themselves probably account for the extra activity. They don't actually produce lightning. Instead, they belch out solid particles that form the seeds for raindrops. Their diesel fuel contains a lot of sulfur. Small particles of the sulfur climb high into the atmosphere. Water vapor coalesces around them, forming droplets. These droplets are smaller than those formed around other particles, so they're carried higher into the atmosphere. They climb high enough, in fact, that they freeze. As these tiny ice crystals move, they generate an electric field. Eventually, that creates a discharge, a bolt of lightning. The researchers haven't found a relationship between ships and lightning in other oceans. Shipping lanes elsewhere may be wider, or they may not carry as much traffic. And conditions in the Indian Ocean and South China Sea are better for building tall clouds, including those powered by ships. Science in the Sea is a production of the University of Texas Marine Science Institute and is available as a weekly podcast at scienceandthesea.org. I'm Holly Brawley.